Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Scott Oshry, a partner at Mesa, where he's also CMO. If you aren't familiar with Mesa, the beauty brand incubator is responsible for some of the biggest companies in beauty today, including Flower Beauty, Believe Beauty by Dollar General, and Heritage by Mindy McKnight. Welcome, Scott. Hello. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about what's been going on at Mesa this last year. You know, there's been a lot of attention um, based on, you know, the investment with Bain, as well as um, some of the successes of your brands, like Believe Beauty with Dollar General and Kristen S. What's been going on and within your four walls? Busyness. We have uh, been growing, and we're a 25-year-old company, so we've constantly been growing, but... It's interesting to see the changes when you're growing from a $10 million company to a $20 million company and a $40 million company to an $80 million company. But when we're growing at the pace at which we're growing, at the size at which we're growing, you can really see and feel those growing pains. So we, uh, just to give, I guess, context to that, we um, grew at about 50% just domestically last year and we'll grow another 60% domestically this year. So you certainly start to feel that. So for our listeners out there who may not know Mesa, tell us a little bit about your business model. A 25-year-old company, you have an exclusive brand piece of the business, you have an outsourcing piece of the business, and private label. Tell us where you started and how you kind of got there. We started by really looking at what suppliers were offering in our space. And boy, without sounding overly narcissistic, a lot of the ideas that we were bringing weren't necessarily happening within our space. The partners within this company, and myself included, uh, and some of the other domestic partners, didn't start in the beauty industry. We had prior careers. So when we entered the beauty business, things that weren't being done were things like industrial design and renderings out of CAD systems and being sure that you had engineering and design working together to always craft items to price point, having all chemist and formula development in-house. And for a company like ours that was offering outsourced solutions, a lot of those solutions were usually being provided by companies that were sort of middlemen to either stock components or things that existed or taking design work from other companies that may have been front view illustrator or Photoshop drawings of a fragrance bottle, then bringing that unengineered artwork to a manufacturer that would try to interpret it but didn't have three-dimensional views of it and designs would get bastardized. And the list just sort of goes on and on. And because in a prior life, we were always building our own brands, we had to do everything soup to nuts. So I think that's what delineated at least the Zorbit side, which eventually molded into Mesa here domestically, is that we were just thinking a little bit differently about it, and that is we were providing start-to-finish solutions. What was that prior life, Scott? So to uh, give you an idea of how far away I was from beauty— uh, boy, this is also the second time I'm saying this during this podcast without sounding too narcissistic. <laughs> I was actually the guy that invented the CD sleeve. 
So if you, now I'm dating myself, if you ever had a CD and you took it out of the jewel box and put it in a sleeve, whether that was in a wallet or on the visor of your car or in a unit at home, that was something that me and Sean Brosmith invented. So we had a company for 10 years where we were making and selling multimedia storage. So when you brought that knowledge to the beauty industry and obviously kind of coming from an outsider perspective, I mean, it must have been shocking at the time that so much of this was done so piecemeal and not soup to nuts. It it was. And when we were living in that realm and immersed in that realm for so long and not necessarily looking at other industries, we felt that how we did it was how everybody did it. So when we started working early on in the beauty industry and we... Again, not because we were the smartest guys in the room, just because by default and that's how we did it, we just started doing it that way. So we would come in the room and we would have white samples or we had very early SLA models. We had photorealistic renderings that were generated out of the same CAD systems that were going to cut tools. And uh, we just didn't know any other way. So it's not as if we thought we were bringing... uh, something that was earth-shatteringly different. It's just how we used to operate in our old company. And and I think it was part of this methodology, at least from a supply standpoint, that allowed us to grow as quickly as we did. So part of your business, obviously, was kind of creating these private label brands and and filling in the gaps, if you will, for beauty brands that, you know, Zara did or H&M did or Walmart or Target. When did that start changing to being kind of a predictor of trends and kind of seeing the white space that existed in these beauty departments? Well, actually, nice that we started this off with a little bit of my history because in the age of Roundhouse, which was my first company, our number one account was Walmart. And we spent a lot of time building our brand at Walmart. Made sense that they were our biggest customer because at that time they were still the largest retailer in the world at that moment. Uh, I guess they still are from a brick and mortar standpoint as we sit here right now, but uh, they were the largest retailer and supplying them was a goal of ours and we were able to make that happen. So flash forward to supplying other companies, we sat around and looked at each other and had a moment whereby we said we're we're so busy supplying other companies and we want to continue to do that, but we should also be taking that same knowledge, that same intellectual capital, and instead of building up other people's brands, we should be building up our own. Because clearly when we sold our prior company, it, it was a brand that we sold. It was actually two brands that we sold, and its whole value were those brands. So it made sense, at least to me, that we should be investigating making our own brands and simultaneously knowing that Walmart was my number one customer in the past, by default, I said to myself, we should be making our own brands and our first customer should be Walmart because they are the number one in consumers of beauty right now. So why wouldn't we? And what was that brand when you did that? That was Flower with Drew Barrymore. And how has the proposition that you brought with Flower Beauty, you know, kind of been catapulted today? Because everybody was is now doing what you did then. Did mm-hmm. you foresee that? Did you expect that? We, oh yeah, in all honesty, no, I did not expect <laughs> it. N- not at all. There, are, there is absolutely value in proprietary brands, without a doubt. And that, that 
thought process is one that Walmart 100% agreed with, is that, yeah, I should have a private brand because it'll delineate me. And uh, when you're on the top, why not do delineation? Because it can help diversify you even further from the people that are coming after you. At that particular moment, private brand was about higher margin, higher maintained margin, and a point of differentiation, but mainly a higher maintained margin. None of us could have anticipated what was going to happen with the iPhone, with the smartphone, with uh, an ability for a consumer to find newness and diversity constantly. Well, with Flower Beauty, you really kind of bucked the trend of celebrities being the face of the brand, but celebrities being the brand. They are the founder. You're helping operate that business with them. And you were a partner with them just as much as they are. So what was that reaction from, you know, the beauty industry? What was that like to experience, you know, not only being this partner, but also a founder in your own right? Yeah, I think that, you know, how, how does that viewed as from the beauty industry now? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Back when we launched Flower, because I'm a person who's always built my own brands with my partners and an entrepreneur, we saw ourselves as the founders because we were. And we knew how important it was to have founder methodology, founder DNA, entrepreneurship woven into what you create because you're not just giving birth to something that's lifeless. You're giving birth to something that has a reason to live. So when we looked to make our first brand and we're fortunate enough to meet Drew, have a conversation with her and her vision and her love of this category and interest in this category, hence the partnership that we created here and us help her support Flower as her founder brand, it was important that this by default, again, in our own mind, because we just don't think about it any other way, that that this partner was a true founder, CEO, visionary with with a purpose. And that's what Drew was. She was coming off of CoverGirl. She was a CoverGirl for five years. She was their most successful. She was art directing photo shoots and pushing product concepts to them and completely, as Drew does in everything, immersing herself with all her creative passion. And when we met with her and we saw this creative passion, this amazing vision that she had, uh, of course, it made 100% sense to us. So to answer your question as to how we perceive it, we don't and can't and hopefully never will unless we just are blinded enter into a relationship or build a product or have a founder partner that we build a company with that doesn't bring those values. So whether or not the beauty industry sees that or doesn't see it, I don't know. I I think in the old days they didn't because they would do licensing deals. In the new day, they realize that indie brands are important, so they buy them. Now they're realizing they're exhausting massive amounts of cash and some of them that aren't working. So why not build it as opposed to buying it? So they are attempting to build it. Uh, As I think out loud, some of them are building it with quote unquote founder partners, but I almost feel like it's on, it's, it's almost viewed superficially going back to their days of just licensing names. So let's talk about that, Scott, because I mean, the the rapid pace that we've seen celebrity brands or influencer brands, especially in the last six months or last year, 
has been fervent. You know, Mace has obviously gotten a lot of attention, but so have other beauty brand incubators, whether it be HipDot and Kesha or uh, Beach House. So, you know, how are you able to distill that what you're doing is different? We stick to our values when we evaluate whether or not we think there's truly a white space, this is a retailer we want to work with, we can bring something meaningful to the market. And by being disciplined, it uh, it sort of answers the questions for us. So for, for terminology, I guess, that everybody could understand, but one I hate to use, we just make sure it checks every box. And if it checks every box, then it would make sense to us. So I don't, I can't necessarily comment on some of these other beauty brand incubators, the ones that you had mentioned and how they approach it and how we may navigate where they don't just kind of goes back to the prior comments that I had, whereby we will always run everything through our filter to be sure that what we're going to bring is going to be meaningful. I have a lot of isms around the office and one of them, uh, one of my favorite statements is any fool can launch a product, but it takes a genius to create one that's sustainable. So we try to build sustainable brands. And I feel in this fever pitch moment whereby retailers and beauty brand incubators and to some extent some of the uh, heritage beauty brand owners and runners are trying to answer this insatiable appetite and consumers' ability to find newness uh, by just throwing a bunch of stuff out there. And, and I don't subscribe to it personally. We don't subscribe to it at Mesa. Uh, we are fortunate enough that our brands are growing everywhere. We just looked at our performance for 2020 just today, and we're planning for 2021. And uh, week over week, our numbers go up. So we are determined and laser-focused on growth and sustainability. Last year, you kind of bucked the trend that we were seeing with what you did with Dollar General, which um, produced a line, a product, all of the above, that didn't have an influencer face, didn't have a, a founder the way that we had been seeing it, and had the performance of product that was much, much more expensive. What was the play there? What were you seeing? When I walked through the, I went to a school by the name of Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And when I was in high school, all I wanted to be was a car designer. And I remember when my dad took me to Art Center and we walked into the gallery and I walked around and I was looking at all these student projects and the design was just blowing my mind. I, I wanted everything. Now, these were all just handmade models that were painted and fabricated to look photorealistic and actually three-dimensionally realistic. And I was just dying. And then when I left the school and I was driving home with my dad, I just had this sort of epiphany in my mind. And I guess I was just thinking about a brand, being a brand builder even back then. And I thought to myself, wow, good design doesn't have to be more expensive. Great products should be for everybody. Great design should be for everybody. Now, keeping in mind, this was back in the 80s. And <laughs> in today's world, we are, we are thankfully just showered in wonderful design. We can, uh, we can go just about anywhere and find things that have now been industrial designed. But back when I was growing up, very few products were industrial designed. They were majorly, mainly engineered designed. So 
anything from scissors to telephones to just about you name it, weren't really done by designers. They were just by, done by engineered, and, and then they would get manufactured. So, so viewing all this amazingly industrial design product just sort of gave me that epiphany that you that that this beauty should be for everybody. So when it came to approaching Dollar General and what I personally was most fascinated with and what I wanted to try to chase was was that thought process which was as we stood in Dollar General and looked around there was no respect for the consumer. So we embarked on this journey with Dollar General to create 100% custom packaging uh, outside of things like pencils and some of the other stuff, which, of course, just don't justify custom tooling. Uh, custom formulas, n- nothing out of China. Formulas that come from the best fillers in the world. Uh, best filler in the world, arguably for mascara. Best filler in the world, arguably for slurry powders. And, and just work to create a line that would be no different than what you would buy at a department store. And we wanted to push that, and we did, and we're proud of it. And uh, I think if you see some of the rates and reviews on some very um, astute uh, reviewers, that, uh, that I think we accomplished that. And it's kind of a proud moment for me as I sit here because uh, – it really, it really harkens back to sort of those early thought processes I was having when I was school, thinking to myself, why can't everything be great? Why can't everywhere you go, just every single product and dwelling and car and apparel and everything just be beautiful? You guys have been very astute um, at putting the right brand in the right retailer, whether um, it's Kristen S. and Target or what you're doing um, with Heritage and Walmart and obviously with Dollar General and Believe Beauty. But, you know, one of the things that I remember hearing about Believe Beauty was that not only did it drive people to stores, but it totally revamped Dollar General's online business. Is that what's happening for all of the brands that you're bringing to these retailers? While protecting what could be proprietary information for our retailer, sales from an e-com standpoint on Believe Beauty at Dollar General are... I just have to use the term unbelievable. So you'll have to use your imagination on exactly what that is, but but beyond a meaningful amount uh, for e-com and in-store for the category that Bleed Beauty is occupying versus where the old Heritage brand used to be, also pretty darn phenomenal. When we received the numbers, we were speechless. So I, I, I don't want to go in specific numbers because that may or may not be proprietary. They're a publicly traded company. Most likely this stuff will, of course, come out, but it hasn't been released yet. So I just feel compelled to answer it that way, if that's okay. Okay, Scott. Um, you know, you guys were ahead of the curve, obviously, with what you're doing with Believe Beauty. But, you know, interestingly, and I don't know if this is a through line, but, you know, you've paid a lot of attention to hair when this softening, of course, of color cosmetics is happening. And, you know, the traditional players are really concerned and worried. How is something like Heritage and, and Walmart and also TPH with Target really responding to this uh, desire for newness and, and innovation in hair care? We think amazingly. <laughs> we just launched 
on the 26th with Heritage. It was an online launch at walmart.com. This I have no problem saying. We sold out. How many months of units? Uh, I can't say that, but we did the largest shipment we could possibly get out of the door post that, and it sold out. We anticipate nothing but amazing things with Heritage. It's an incredible price point. Uh, The formulas, like everything we do, because we're formula first, packaging first, are just as far as formula could possibly be pushed at this particular moment for price point. We have very high expectations for that brand. Mindy's reach is, she's the largest hair influencer in the world, 2.4 billion views on YouTube. So we have high expectations outside of the fact that the brand fills a phenomenal white space for Walmart, our launch partner, but then post Walmart's exclusivity, of course, just answers a white space in hair in general. As for TPH, just launched a a soft launch the other day. It, we will start to be very vocal about the brand as it gets placed in store, but it's just shipping and landing right now. But again, with that brand, like all brands we like to think, it's answering a white space that actually, as a brand builder, we feel was one of the most overlooked categories. Uh, textured hair is, is a category that makes up just about 60% of hair right now, and we forget that. We forget that textured hair is is uh, is beyond just African-American hair. And this brand is focused on the needs of all textured hair. So understanding that that is just about 60% of the market, understanding that it's been, we think, underserved, boy, in, in two huge fronts. One, from a formula standpoint, there has been such a move in incredible active ingredients right now. And because we have in-house chemists, because we're fortunate enough to work with some of the best filler partners in the world, we're relentless with formula. And we feel that we have put together some formulas that uh, pretty crazy. So uh, from a formula standpoint, pretty underserved in that category, but also from a packaging standpoint, we did not look to what's being done in packaging in that standpoint. We wanted to completely white paper that. So working with, again, our founder partner, Taraji, she just has a love for art form. She has a love for color. She has a obviously a huge love for fashion. So the packaging is is just very hyper design focused. So we were hopeful for both of those. So Scott, I have to bring up, you know, Tracy Ellis Ross launched Pattern Beauty last year with Beach House, but you know, Taraji's line in TPH is much more approachable from a price perspective. So what are you trying to say with in terms of design, in terms of formulation, as well as price? It seems like this is an obvious no brainer for uh, the textured hair consumer. Uh, we, we would like to think so. We think it's a far more accessible price point. We are more bullish about our formulas than formulas from any of our competitors. So we think once rates and reviews start to surface that consumers will be very interested in this product line. But even beyond that, we also invented products that don't exist and form factors that don't exist. So within the TPH line, working with Taraji, she was very focused on the fact that there's nothing for protective styles. There's nothing for weaves. uh, Even for 
dreadlocks, men who have dreadlocks, there's nothing to work for these protective styles. So we've created form factors that allow you to get underneath weaves and allow you to uh, wash and take care of your scalp without drying it out. Really products that focus on consumers that want to wear their hair naturally, uh, which we think, of course, is one of the biggest trends because it should be because natural coily hair is fantastic. So uh, we have those different form factors and those different products that we're not seeing from anybody else. So we're we're driving innovation there as well. You're expected to release six more brands later this year. Um, and your revenue targets are out of this world. They're up $310 million in revenue this year. So where, in terms of placing your bets, is it is it digital? Is it omni-channel? Is it color? Is it hair? Like, what can you tell us about this next year? So we are working on six new brands. That's correct. And we are, <laughs> I'm going to use this term, but I'm not going to use it lightly. I'll actually use it to its full meaning. We are incubating six brands right now. That does not mean we're launching six brands. And I feel like a lot of companies have a tendency, again, going back to a little bit what we talked about before, where people are just throwing everything against the wall right now. Uh, we're, we're constantly incubating. We have a whole department within our company called the Blue Sky Team, and their whole entire job is just that, to think blue sky, to be unhandcuffed, to wake up every single day, to be uncumbered by the daily activities of our company and just dream. So we are looking at six very interesting things right now. How many may or may not launch, we don't know because as we incubate these things, just like we've done in the past, sometimes we cook them and we just decide it's... uh, it's not perfect. And, and if it can't, again, going back to my other statement, if it can't be sustainable, if it can't grow, uh, we've all seen the numbers, Nielsen reporting on, 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 on you know, a plethora of our brands. So if it can't experience that kind of growth, we're just not interested. We would rather take funds and continue to dump them into our existing brands than launch things that won't have legs. You've compared yourself, Mesa, to a CPG company, a modern-day CPG company. So what cues, I mean, have you seen, you know, those larger companies, whether it be a Procter or Gamble or a Unilever, I mean, they've, they're all trying to do this themselves within their own companies. What have, what's your take on their results? It's a hard question for me to answer because I don't want to ever sound like I'm saying anything negative about other people within our industry. Uh, I just feel that, you know, the cream rises to the top. So um, I think that it's smart for them to try to think more entrepreneurial. So here is a story for you. Let's even step back to where I was when I was in school. So when I was going to school and studying car design, all of the car design or car manufacturers in the world started opening up design studios in Los Angeles because Los Angeles was a hotbed for automobiles. It was a hotbed for cruising. It was a hotbed for showing off in your car. Your car would be part of your identity. And so they felt Southern California was one of the best places to open up car design studios in order to, again, think blue sky, think about what's next. So we have that as a core element of what we do. We have our Blue Sky Division. Simultaneously, we have our industrial design and engineering team in Los Angeles. So it, too, 
is removed from the day-by-day of our company so they can be focused and non-encumbered by what's going on daily, which would pull them away from that sort of exploring clean thoughts and trying to create something meaningful in a vacuum. I think that it's smart for these larger CPG companies uh, to try to incubate as opposed to purchase. I'm a big advocate of that. The bigger question is whether or not that's in their DNA. So when I think about how we've always approached what we do and what has been successful for us is that's just always been core to what we do. So can these quote-unquote blue sky divisions for these larger CPG companies truly operate outside their realm? Even with our own company that is becoming sizable, we still are smart enough to keep these satellite offices and this sort of satellite mentality to allow this pure entrepreneurial endeavor to happen. So is it smart? Yes. Can they do it? Sure. Absolutely, they can, but they're going to have to think differently. They're going to have to take a new approach because if they try to, I think, incubate how they run current brands, I think that, that that's a question that sort of answers itself, which is I don't think it, it, it can be as successful as it should. And what about for the retailers themselves? Because we've also seen an uptick of Target, of Walmart trying to, you know, boost themselves as a, as a brand builder themselves. Smartest thing in the world. You're right. They're doing it. Target is probably the most learned in it, I would say. They are making deeper strides in it, and it's working for them. If you look at where, just again, staying with Target for a moment, if you look at where their growth came from and the percentage of their growth, at least in our industry in beauty, uh, without divulging any proprietary information, if you, and I won't Don't know that I can give the numbers, but if you look at it, that's where they're winning. So they will continue to to incubate. We retailers need differentiation. So I think I hate when I hear that retail is dead. So we I always spend a lot of time going throughout the United States, spending time. I drive across the United States um, every other year, and I take a different path every time. And I stop at malls. I stop at smaller stores. I stop to see what's going on at retail. You can't just live in New York and Los Angeles and think that you're going to design for middle America or every facet of America, even ones that are just outside of Los Angeles uh, or New York because it's a, it's a plethora of humans and thought processes and what they're looking for and desires and aesthetics and um, certainly financial constraints. So retail is, is great. I went to a couple different malls um, um, from Northern California to Southern California just over the Christmas break. I went to seven different places stemming again from the top down to the bottom. And I, I couldn't find parking in any of them. So it felt like the malls in the 80s. Newness drives sales. Whether you are holding your phone and flipping through pages with your finger for your eyes to see or walking down the aisles of retailers with your legs for your eyes to see, you're just shopping. And retailers that are bringing in merchandise that feels new, better, different, and relevant 
are being purchased and those retailers are growing. Look at Nordstrom's, for example. Everybody's leaving New York and Nordstrom's is, is, is coming in hard and, and growing. So there are definitely sales to make at retail. You just need to give the consumer a reason to purchase. Perfect. Thank you so much, Scott. It was great having you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.